Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Collins. Thank you, yeah, keep going. All right. Let's go throw ourselves into the mosh pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though we're in our 40s, we can still mosh. <laughs> Sure we can. <laughs> sure we can. I'm a stage dive. I'm gonna punch you just for fun. Uh, did you? Were you ever? Did you ever experience a mosh pit? No. Oh yeah. Oh man. See, this is again. You know, we talked about in Raiders and Back to the Future how the slight variation in our age. I mean, you're two and a half years older than I am. Right. But that slight variation can play a huge factor in certain you know, spots in your life. So right. You get to see Raiders and you have full recollection of it. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I have multiple memories of being involved in a mosh pit because in 1991 I was 16 and you had gone to college. And so it was an entirely, you know. And it was, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. When if somebody bumps into me, I'm going to have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. <laughs> Watch, Watch it, dude. <laughs> What's your problem? Yeah. No, I, I, I was I was involved in several mosh pits in my high school days. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's fun. Um, so do you, you – okay, we haven't talked about what we're talking about today. Let's talk about this, okay? okay. All right, so today we are again uh, broaching the subject of two bands that changed the paradigm. No doubt. There's absolutely no, no doubt, doubt about it. No doubt is not one of the bands. I like No Doubt a lot, but they're – Don't not. speak. <laughs> okay, no. No, not No Doubt. <laughs> Nirvana. Nirvana. And Pearl Jam. Yes. With their two, what I would call debut albums. I mean, Nirvana had Bleach. Ten was definitely Pearl Jam's debut. But the albums that made them the household names. For sure. And they, they came out basically at the same time. Yeah, exact same time. Pearl, Pearl Jam preceded Nirvana by just a couple like, of weeks, I think. Yeah, yeah. Was, Pearl Jam came out in August of 91 and Nirvana's Nevermind came out in September. September 24th. Yes. 91. September 24th. Now, the single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, was actually released a couple weeks before that, so it is even closer than that. Right. Yeah. The awareness of Nirvana probably occurred before the awareness of Pearl Jam, and so that's why we're tackling them first, and then tackling Pearl Jam next week. Right. So this week is Nirvana's Nevermind. Yep. Let's just talk personally. Do you remember what you were doing, what was going on when you when you heard something off of Nirvana's Nevermind? Yeah. So time? you and I have talked briefly about this, but in August of 91, I left for college, right? I graduated right. from high school. Yeah. I'm a freshman at the University of Oklahoma, and I'm in the dorms. I don't have MTV. I've got the radio stations or whatever. But so Nirvana was kind of a slow burn for me because I, w- I didn't have access to it like I did when I was at home with cable. For Nevermind, for Smells Like Teen Spirit, I have a very specific memory. Uh, I don't remember what the field trip was that we were on, but we were coming home. I think it was it was like a three-hour bus ride. We were coming home, and this girl who I'd been kind of looking at on the bus who I didn't really know that well, started talking to me and she's like oh have you heard this new song and i was like i think i've heard this before let me let me listen so i'm listening to her headphones with her and she's and it's getting towards the end of the song and she's like it sounds like he's saying bloody nail bloody nail at the end and that was you know that's kind of nirvana's 
thing that you just don't understand what they're saying half the time. And so even when I hear it today, I still I, I still can sing Bloody Nail to the end of the song. Uh, that girl became my girlfriend for a while after that. So that was a, that's probably why that memory stuck that in my head. That song will give you that special feeling? Well, that it does, yes. It brings back some memories. <laughs> I would argue that this album had more impact on pop culture than any other album since Thriller. Yeah, I'd say more so. I mean, I would I put I would put it above Thriller. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a it was a big big change, a big big change. It, they're close, but yeah, I would definitely say it had a huge impact, comparable at the very least. So that started off. The band started off back in '87. Kurt Cobain had been growing up in a town called Aberdeen, Washington, which is near Seattle, like 100 and so miles away, but couldn't really be further apart as far as psychology and the scene and all that. It was not a hip town. Right. And he had what a lot of kids grew up with as a kind of rough life. His parents got divorced. He had some emotional issues that made it hard for him to stay at anybody's house. But uh, as it turns out, those type of people connect and he ended up finding a guy named Chris Novoselic, uh, who is also an Aberdeen guy, actually got introduced to Chris through his brother, Robert. Kurt had overheard Robert's band playing upstairs. They were really loud. Kurt asked Robert what was going on. And he says, oh, that's my older brother, Chris. He's got a punk band. And so that piqued Kurt's interest because he had been playing music. And it's, you know, I listened to a thing where his, his guitar teacher is talking and his guitar teacher just looks like, I mean, you want to talk about Aberdeen being different. He looks like your, you know, your dad's drinking buddy. But he's he told him he's like, hey, if you want to, you know, if you want to be big, if you want to be famous, you can't just do what other people are doing. You have to be unique and do something different. And he's like, my gosh, he took that to heart because he came back with songs with chords that didn't belong together. But anyway, Kurt bothered Chris for a while to get him to uh, join a band. Gave him the a demo tape that he had made with a band that Kurt had started called Fecal Matter, mm-hmm. and. Basically, Chris just wasn't really interested and didn't listen for a few months. And then when he finally did listen, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, we could we could do a band. Yeah, this would be all right. I'm not sure Nirvana gets as far if they're called fecal matter. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And that's, there are several interesting names that they tossed around. Fecal matter was one of them, obviously. And they had started a group called the Sellouts, which was a Credence Clearwater Revival <laughs> cover band i just i when i I saw that the first time i was like okay that has to be a joke there's no way no turns out you can find recordings of them covering bad moon right wow yeah wow yeah yeah but kurt decided on the name nirvana because he it sounded beautiful you know they were do they were pursuing punk music and they thought i want to have something that's in contrast to punk, you know, they didn't want to be another punk group. And so they picked a name that was more I think easygoing. It, I think that was a huge factor in their success. Absolutely. Truly, though, the name Nirvana is marketable. Yeah. Much more marketable than, you know, Fecal Matter, the, fecal matter, the sellouts. Uh, uh, Skid Row, though, was one of them. Wow. Turns out that name could be successful. Skid Row for a later podcast hopefully yeah nirvana is just a great name it really is it's it is a great name but then they start doing their own material kurt has a girlfriend that works while he stays at home and does his art and his music so he gets this big amount of time to kind of develop his style they have a few drummers that they have play they have guys who sub in 
And when they ultimately end up doing well enough that they've got their own material and decide to do an album, they sign with this kind of underground album label called Sub Pop. Right. Uh, Sub Pop's got its own history, which I don't have time to completely go into, but it is an interesting history. But Sub Pop was just a couple of guys who went to these concerts of these bands in Seattle. And Seattle was this kind of unique situation where other bands really didn't go there to tour and there wasn't really outside influences coming in. So they kind of developed their own sound. And so you get bands like Soundgarden and Mudhoney and the Melvins and uh, they all knew each other. Like half of the crowd at any given concert was going to be other band members come to see other guys play and they're very supportive and had developed their own sound. So these guys from Sub Pop hear them and they're like, well, let's just start our own record label and we'll do it. And it became kind of this cultish, hey, we're a member of this special club. We got some Sub Pop albums. And then in a move of marketing brilliance, they call a guy who's a journalist for one of the major music magazines in Europe. And they say, hey, if you want to hear the Seattle scene, come on over. And they get the money together to fly him out there, give him the tour of the shows of the bands that they've got signed. He goes back and writes an article in his magazine. And suddenly, Sub Pop is the new coolest thing. And the Seattle music is super exciting. With Sub Pop, Nirvana does their first album, which is called Bleach. Mm-hmm. On that album, they had a drummer named Chad Channing, and he's not a bad drummer. But as our friend Arlen Bullard put it to me, if it wasn't for Dave Grohl, Kurt Cobain would be a barista in Seattle somewhere. I don't know if I'd get that far, <laughs> but but Chad Chad Channing was good. He didn't have a, he didn't have a bad technique at all. He was a solid drummer, but he it was adding Dave Grohl to the band was. A step of magic. Oh, it's huge. Does, so, does Chad Channing lead one of the biggest rock bands in the world right now? No. Okay. Right. Dave Grohl does. Yes. Okay. And Dave Grohl was this guy from Virginia who had, he quit high school to start playing in bands. He was drumming in bands and moved out to California to be more involved in the scene. And after Bleach and the tour with that album, they kind of said to Chad, hey, you know, you're not really meeting our standards. And so they had a few, they went through a few other substitute drummers. And while they're going through that process, they're not really finding something that they super clicked with. But then they go to a concert with the lead singer, uh, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins, go to a concert of this band called Scream, which is a hardcore punk band. And the drummer is a guy named Dave Grohl. Wow. And as it turns out, you know, they're like, oh, this guy's awesome. But then he's with another band. And then two weeks later, Scream disbands and falls apart. And so the drummer for Mudhoney, he gets a call from Dave, who's like, hey, my band just disbanded. You have anybody that I can hook up with? And he says, ah, you know, the guys from Nirvana are looking for a drummer. Dave flies up, they get together, they play, and it's magic instantly. Whenever Kurt Cobain gets together with Butch Vig later, he says, we've got the best drummer in the world. Yep. And we're ready to go. Yeah. He says he has perfect metronome timing and he hits really hard. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so Bleach had come out in 1989, and they were touring still with Chad Channing at that time, but they decided they wanted to do another album. Sub Pop says, hey, you know, why don't we do an EP or something like that? And they're not real excited about that, but what ends up happening is they release this, uh, release a single called Sliver. He wanted to try to produce the most marketable candy basically lame as could be song that he could but that was the most had the most appeal to the public and so that was that was what he did they actually went to record that song during a recording session by a group called tad and tad had a lunch break and the guys from nirvana including chad channing come in and they used the equipment of the guys from tad and John and Dino, who's the guy who recorded Bleach for them, does this song. They do it over the lunch, like like Tad's sitting there eating their sandwiches, <laughs> <laughs> and they're in there for less than an hour recording the song as they're singing. And so once that comes out, the Sub Pop says, okay, hey, we think you should, for your next album, you should use Butch Vig. There's this guy out of Madison, Wisconsin, and he's got his own studio called Smart Studios. Uh The band's touring at that time, so they say, all right, we'll stop. We'll do an extended stay in Madison where we're going to have a show anyway, and we'll go in and we'll record our second album. And so they've got several songs on there that are similar to the songs that end up on Nevermind, and one of them last one of them makes it all the way through but they had a week to record and about five days in uh, Kurt Cobain totally kills his voice singing lithium and said they can't really go on Jonathan from Sub Pop flies out there and he's like this sounds good we'll come back in a few weeks and re-record right and then they leave on their tour and Butch Fig doesn't hear anything for a long time. Hey, Butch Vig was like expecting them to come back and all of a yeah. sudden it's like, well, where are they? I don't know. I haven't yeah. heard from them. But I, I yeah, did want to say this is, I think, very fortuitous for the band because this is still too early. I mean, 1989 yeah. and 1990, hair bands were still ruling the day. Yeah. And the world has not really tired of that yet. So let's talk about that for a second, okay? Because yeah. we're talking about a revolution here. Right. Right. So what was going on at the time that these albums were released, right? Oh yeah. So uh, September of ninety one, you had the the top charts had albums like Color Me Bad, uh-huh. Marky Mark, Boys to Men, Mariah Carey, Michael Bolton. Yeah, and the heavy hitting uh, Garth Brooks. Yeah, the heavy hitting songs like the the metal songs that ever. I mean, you had it had completely changed. The days, you know, we talked previously about Van Halen and Def Leppard changing the way that music looked. Like they made hard rock accessible to the general audience, right? right. And then it became what everybody wanted, and everybody was listening to hard rock, and the people who wanted more were listening to heavy metal. And you had these bands like Motley Crue, I mean, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Cinderella Poison, right? And so. They, warrant it becomes a bigger and bigger thing people more and more and so then what became at first a revolution becomes mainstream yeah and you've got guys dressed in black leather riding motorcycles around at strip clubs and you're just like this is this is where we are now right oh for sure and so what we have with nevermind is a reaction to that now a whole lot of the guys who end up being huge players in the 
Here it comes. Here's the word. Everybody ready? ready for it? Grunge. Grunge. Grunge scene are guys who started off as metal players. But of course they did because that was the most popular music. And if you're in a band, you're going to play music that styles that are popular. I mean, the idea is to do things that people want to listen to. So fall of 91 for me, Yeah. this is just post Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. Which for me, I love the album. Huge sure. fan. Yeah. And this is in the gap between... Hysteria and Adrenalize, right? No Def Leppard. Right. And we're still waiting for Guns N' Roses follow-up record. Right, yeah. Use Your Illusion, which does come out, I think, in October of 91. So it's yeah. just down the road a little bit. Yeah. But there's this kind of gap. And when those guys are gone, and when they return, it's different. Oh, yeah. It is a, it is a I said it before, I'll say it again, it's paradigm shift. Because you look at those guys in the leather outfits with the big implanted girls and the big hairsprayed hair and then all of a sudden you got these guys with dirty unwashed hair dirty unwashed clothes torn jeans flannel shirts and they are a completely different scene and it's something that a whole generation of people were like yes these are my people So they recorded Bleach in 30 hours. It ends up being this kind of underground thing. Dave Grohl had heard it and was excited when they finally called him to be a member of the band. And they released Sliver, which is getting them more fame. And then they say, okay, we want to do a full album. And so Sub Pop sends them out to Madison. They're recording with Butch Vig. When they come back, Sub Pop is having trouble. And honestly, they're a new record label by two guys who've never made records before. So they didn't they just didn't know what they were doing, right? But they had been so good at recognizing talent that major, major record labels were starting to court them to go, hey, how would you like to become a subsidiary of us? And so what happens is the guys from Nirvana go, why would we want to be with a label that is a subsidiary of a major label instead of just going to the major label ourselves? So when they sign with... The major record label, you know, they have their own producers that they want to use, but the guys are uncomfortable with this. And they're like, you know, we're this is our first time doing a big one of these things, and we really don't want to get pushed around. We'd really like you to call Butch Vig back and have him record for us. I heard Chris talk about this, and he yeah. said that uh, they were comfortable with, with Butch because he was patient. Yeah. And so the record labels concedes. They say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let Butch Vig be the producer on this one. He's at least familiar with the music that's going to go on it, but we don't want it to be over there at Smart Studios. We want him to come out here to California. And so they end up going to this place called Sound City. Sound City is a hole in the wall in the industrial district of Van Nuys, California, right? where some of the greatest albums in history have been recorded. You've got Fleetwood Mac, you've got Tom Petty, you've got the, Neil the Young. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album was recorded. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, you walk into this place that looks like some place where you'd be buying spare parts, <laughs> and there are gold albums on the wall as you walk in. And there is a great, by the way, there's a great documentary on this one that was directed by our friend Dave Grohl, because when Sound City ultimately ended up shutting down, Dave's like, I'm going to go buy that soundboard. It had what was called the Neve soundboard, which was the big reason that everybody thinks that these, these albums were so well-received is how good it sounded in the studio and from this uh, soundboard that they have, the Neve soundboard. So when it closed down, Dave Grohl's like, 
I want that soundboard. I will buy it. And so he made a whole movie about Sound City. Wow. And then the process of getting the soundboard and moving it to his own personal studio. Oh, cool. When they were going to end up recording in California for the major record label, the date kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back. And they were so excited to go, had been practicing hard. They ended up having to do shows. Just imagine this when you think about the sales of the album right. that followed. They had to do extra shows just to get enough gas money to drive down to California and record. The it's album. incredible. It's yeah. incredible. And, and once again, I think the pushback of the date is very fortuitous for the band because the world was not ready yet. Not quite yet. Maybe not. This album cost about $65,000 to make. Yeah, that sounds right. Which is, I mean, you compare that to what Hysteria cost? Yeah. yeah. Hysteria cost $5 million to make. sixty-five yeah. grand to make this album. Yeah. And then you base that on what it sold? I mean, right. it's, in, it's incredible. David Geffen Company only expected to sell about 250,000 copies of this album total. Yeah, they only when they when they first produced albums and this was albums, tapes, CDs, everything, they only produced about 50,000 of them. <laughs> well, and you know the the first song was supposed to, the first song off the album was supposed to be Teen Spirit, but it was because they expected it to be kind of laying a base foundation and then they were going to re- release the uh, Come As You Are and that was going to be the big right. one. They did, had no idea. They had what no idea. Smells like Teen Spirit. Teen Spirit. Hey, this is us. Get ready because we've got this other song called "Come As You Are." It's going to be great. Right. But the, interestingly, when they first started, the album wasn't going to be called "Nevermind." This album was originally supposed to be called "Sheep." Yes. As yeah. in, people who buy this are sheep. Yeah. So they. We're just going to say this. They had a definite idea about how they wanted this album to sound, and it wasn't like this album defines us as a band. They understood they had to build the following first, and so their objective was to make children's songs. Right. And, I mean, that is that is literally, Dave Grohl says, children's songs. They wanted to keep it as simple as possible, and they wanted to have a melody to it, and their formula was perfect it was perfect and i'll say this you know kurt cobain talks about this and we can get into this later about his actual opinion of this album but yeah he had an ability to write beetle-like hooks yep for this album yes even though he loved punk yeah his talent really lied in making pop songs right he had grown up listening to the beatles he had musicians in his family who would give him beatles albums as presents and so he loved the beatles specifically loved john lennon but what he does is he takes this dissonant punk he writes these very hooky melodies to make I mean, his vision is to make this as palatable as possible to the masses. And so you get these poppy melodies, plus these heavy, roaring guitars and these really hard drums. And you get the punk kind of dysfunctional, tormented lyrics. It's a great, great mixture. Okay, um, before we go into the songs, do we want to talk about the album cover real quick? Sure, yeah. Go I mean, it's it. kind of controversial. It's, yeah, but and it's also one of the most recognizable album cultures it is. in history. And that's I was thinking about that as I started looking at that particular aspect. You don't get that anymore. I mean, no. people don't go to the record store anymore. You don't flip through albums. You don't have posters of album covers on your wall anymore. It is 
it's dead. All right, so let's talk about the album cover. Okay. For those of you who haven't seen it recently, it's a baby, like a couple months old baby who's yeah. actually swimming, little boy. Yeah. You can see his little pee-pee. Yeah. And he's uh, swimming after a dollar bill that's on a hook. Right. The record label wanted to, like, do something to cover up or remove the penis. Yes. And Kurt Cobain was like, no, no. And if you decide to cover it up, I want it to be with a sticker that says, if you're offended by this, you're probably a closet pedophilia. <laughs> Listen, I know for <laughs> sure the Walmart in my hometown put the price sticker over it. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my word. So the little boy's pee-pee was covered up by yeah. $13.99 Walmart. You guy's know. 28 years old now. <laughs> That's crazy. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. Yeah, so uh, you know, we're going to jump into the album here, and we'll talk about things as we go through. But tell me what happened when we decided to do this episode and you started listening to Nevermind. Okay, so for me, before this episode started, I was obviously super familiar with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. I knew Lithium. I knew In Bloom. I all the knew, singles. All the singles, right? I knew Come As You Are, but I had not listened to the album. And part of the joy of doing this podcast, we really do do a deep dive and we do our research and we get into it. And I listened to it and this album is really, really good. I enjoyed it, getting to know it. It makes me so happy. I, you know, it, it's it's one of the fun parts of the things we do here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I had that experience with Pyromania, I did not expect to enjoy it at all. And I ended up being surprisingly but, surprised and liked it even better than, than, than Hysteria, which I had grown up with. That's incredible. And, and when we compare these two, it'll be interesting to see where both of us lie. But yeah. I found most of this album very, very listenable, very... I mean, it's hard, it's edgy, it's mm -hmm. guitar, raging guitar, and yeah. screaming lyrics. Yep. But uh, not screaming. I mean, he sings them. It's just... No, there's definitely <laughs> screaming. Yeah, I mean, a lot yes. of... Yeah, so the guy from... Uh, one of the guys from Sonic Youth described his voice as toxic glue, which is really... I mean, it yeah. just, it's like his voice captures you, but it's, it's so gravelly and rough and then it's sweet at times in the right moments. Dave Grohl said it sounds like you're boiling nails. I don't know. It's so it's got so much emotion into it uh -huh. that pulls me in. Yeah. Whenever I listen to like people like rawr, 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 uh -huh. I I hate it. I turn it off. Can't stand it. Right. This is not that. No. It's, this is the melody. You're you're the sheep. It's hard singing. I'm the sheep too. I'm totally <laughs> the sheep on this one. We are we are the sheep. listened to this album beginning to end before. okay i owned 10 10 was something that was i mean that's been a part of my life for nearly 30 years now uh but never mind i knew the singles i'd never listened to the album had that same experience that you did where i'm like okay let's let's put on the headphones and see how this goes and four measures into the song i'm like holy crap i didn't mm. realize how good this was and then five songs in i'm like Holy crap, this is unstoppable. This is amazing. It's, it is it is truly an amazing album. And for anybody who's listening who hasn't done that, who hasn't said, okay, I'm just going to sit down and I'll listen to this album from beginning to end, do it now. Yeah. Well, not now. Wait till we're done. <laughs> then go do it. I would say that this is more of a shocker with me, knowing 
us yeah. knowing you and knowing me. Yeah, I was surprised. I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Here we go. We're jumping in. Let's do it. Let's jump in with both feet and, of course, save the best for first. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like Teen Spirit. All right. Smells Like Teen Spirit was released. It's the first single off the album. Yes. This single was released August 27th, 1991. And it, like we had talked about earlier, this was an unexpected success, right? Yeah, right. They really thought that Come As You Are was going to be their big mainstream hit. This is often marked as the spot that grunge went mainstream. So let's talk about this song for a second. Okay. When it starts, Yes. I mean, just the great guitar right there. Yeah, and then clean it, guitar. The drums just... It, blow up yes and then yeah and then as we're singing he's talking about stuff i don't really understand before you get even to the words you have that boom the boom of the drums and then the boom of the guitar that comes in which you're just like holy cow because you if you've listened to him from sub sub pop if you've listened to him from bleach and you hear this kind of raspy kind of guitar yeah you're like okay ready for another underground sound right and then Boom, boom, and you were like, "What am I? What am I listening to?" And so this this goes to the fourth member of the band, Butch Vig. Absolutely, this is absolutely his baby and his contribution. I mean, yes, it's a great song, but they had this idea of how they wanted it, and they wanted it bare bones. And Butch Vig was like, "Okay," and then commenced tricking them into playing multiple tracks so that he could put it all together into a sound like no one's heard before. Talk about double tracking, because before I studied this, I didn't yeah. really know what that was. So double tracking is basically with a, with vocals, it's you sing you sing the vocals and then you sing the vocals again and your voice because even though it you know it's still your voice you're not ever singing it the same way exactly twice so it creates this chorus effect on your voice and so with that particular aspect butch vig would be like okay kurt we're going to do a double track on this one kurt's like i don't really like it just being one he's like john lennon did it okay i'll do it <laughs> and he appealed to this i mean cuz he's I mean, all of these songs, I can hear, now knowing his love for the Beatles, I can listen and go, okay, yeah, I can actually hear some of those melodies, that melodic style of the Beatles finds its way in. And the bands that you're yell- you're talking about yelling to the microphone and the rah, 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 those guys were reacting to the Beatles. I mean, they're, they're still like trying to get away from that, but Kurt embraced it, and Butch, who is a pop guy anyway. Um, by the way, Butch Vig is also a member of the band Garbage, um, which... As a song that figures heavily in Captain Marvel, as does the Nirvana song. Come as you are. There That's you go. right. Yeah. Before he does that, he's recording Nevermind, convinces Kurt to double his voice. I feel stupid and contagious. And he was great at double tracking. He would just run down a take and do another take, and they always locked up really, really well. And then figures out, hey, Dave can actually sing some harmonies here, and he can he can do a chorus, uh, yeah. and their voices sound really good together, right? Right. And so he's like, okay, this sounds good, but hey, I've doubled Kurt's voice. Might as well double, double Dave's, Dave's voice. voice. Right. And so that's how you get this really round, you know, it, you, 
you're hearing it and you just think this is a raw, but as it turns out, a little bit of production is not a bad thing. <laughs> then what happens with the guitars is he he records Kurt and he just lies to him. He's like, yeah, that, that didn't come through right. There's something wrong with the soundboard, something. And so Kurt plays it on not only multiple times, but on multiple different guitars with different effects pedals. And Butch weaves all of those things together so beautifully. It's just... Uh, it's amazing. Let me just say this. I'm not a producer, okay? Yeah. And really, I'm not even a musician, but I listen to Bleach. Yes. I listen to Nevermind. Yes. Butch Vig is hugely impactful on this album. No question about it. He, it, it's kind of like the Mutt Lang effect. Uh-huh. It he is a little He is bit. like the fourth member of the band. He, he really is. Okay, I got something for you. I okay, think good. this is gold nugget. You ready? Okay, yeah. All right. So the song title is Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Which is never said anywhere in the lyrics in the entire song. No, just the title. Teen, spirit, smells, none of it in there. Not a bit. Okay. So where does it come from? This is a great story. Yeah. Kurt came up with a title when a friend of his named Kathleen Hanna, who actually was the lead singer for the band Bikini Kill, wrote on his wall, like yes. graffitied his wall, yeah. Kurt smells like teen spirit. What she was referring to was the fact that Kurt Cobain smelt like the deodorant Teen Spirit, yes, which his girlfriend, Toby Vale at the time, who wore. was also in Bikini Kill. Yes. She's a guitarist, drummer. So this is a reference to the fact that he was rolling around with his girlfriend, <laughs> came off smelling like a deodorant stick, the Teen Spirit deodorant. Yeah. And Kurt was completely unaware of this until after the single was released. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that an incredible story? It is. It's fantastic. So you and I talked off air. This song is the coming together of three perfect things. And we use the word perfect a lot, but it had excellent production. Yes. It was a great song, killer vocalization on this song. Yes. And then the video is off the charts good. It is fantastic. And... The video was directed by a guy named Sam Bayer, and he literally was at the bottom of the list (laughs) of guys that the record label was suggesting to direct the video. The way he puts it is, my demo reel was really bad, and that's probably why I got the job, because they wanted somebody who didn't make it look like a corporate video, and that's what they got. So here's the story behind that. Go ahead. They shot this video on August 17th, 1991. Two days before that, they had played at a club called The Roxy in Hollywood, right? And they passed out flyers and said, hey, two days from now, we're going to be shooting a video. We want all of you guys to come. So these are all the people that were at that concert, showed up, and proceeded to trash the place. Well, what happened was Sam Bayer is yelling at everybody with this megaphone trying to get a good production <laughs> going. He makes them sit still for hours. Like I had the I, I got to be an extra part in one in a movie and we had to sit there while he did take after take after. I could see how that could get a little boring. Uh-huh. Right? And so add on to that that I I wasn't 19 years old and it wasn't in August at the you know peak heat season so they're frustrated and they're and they're punk rock fans right right <laughs> these are not sit down and be straight no Christmas so, applesauce so at some point some point Kurt says why don't you just let them go wild and 
That is exactly what happens. <laughs> so the girls in the anarchy cheerleader suits with the tattoos, Kurt's idea. The goofy janitor dancing along with it's Kurt's idea. And then when he says, let's just let them, you guys want to mosh? Let's mosh. And they start playing and those kids go crazy. They literally started tearing up the set. They destroyed it. In the video, you can see Kurt gets like involved oh, yeah. in it and he pushed. and Oh, yeah. So there's a couple of live videos out there that you can see. Uh, one is of the first time that they played Smells Like Teen Spirit in public. And it's <laughs> my favorite part. It, the, the lyrics aren't exactly the same. It's definitely not that full sound right. that you get from the recording. But my favorite part is Kurt Cobain is saying, okay, this is a, this is a song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. And somebody in their crowd goes, Free bird! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. That guy goes to every single concert. Yeah. And so before I, another video, before they had become the big things that they were, they're still, you know, still playing for decent group size groups of people, but it wasn't stadium size. Is it a video where they're playing on in this bar? There's this bouncer, you know, that's in charge of crowd control that is literally on the stage with them, like kneeling down on one knee, just glaring at all of these kids, moshing, just ready to punch out whoever tries to come on stage. And if you watch their videos, they didn't give a crap if people came on this stage. They it was did. expected. Yeah. I mean, guys would get up there, dance around, jump in the crowd. They ignored them. Yeah. I mean, they're just playing. Yeah, they're just playing. And, but they would get involved, too. And, and Kurt, like many musicians, would stage dive. And so in this video, there's this heavy metal-looking security guard guy glaring at the crowd. Kurt body dives with his guitar into the crowd. He's playing a little bit. But anyway, as they start to push Kurt back up onto the stage, he starts to palm his face trying to push him away which makes Kurt mad who then hits this guy in the head with the butt of his guitar <laughs> so of course as soon as he's back on stage this guy is popping him in the face and he's going down and you see Dave Grohl jump out from behind the drums to break up the fight but it is to me it was the defining video of hey heavy metal screw you yeah yeah in 2004 Rolling Stone named it the ninth greatest 500 songs of all time. It reached number six on the U.S. Hot 100, and still to date, their only top 10 hit. And they thought it might sell 50,000. This album came out in September. By January of 92, it knocked Michael Jackson out of the top spot. I know that, that, is that was insane. <laughs> For an album that cost 65 grand, I don't know what dangerous cost to make, uh -huh. but to knock the king of pop, the iconic artist of that generation out of the top spot yeah three guys from nowhere washington right it's incredible um i did want to mention this when he presented this song to his bandmates yeah chris called it ridiculous yes yeah, they hated it <laughs> and he said okay let's do it and they stood and they he made him play for like an hour and a half song same song again and again and again but slowly Chris played the riff slower and kind of molded that a little bit. Yep. Dave changed the drums just a touch. Yep. And so this is the only song on Nevermind to credit all three band members as the writers. Right. Well, that one in the hidden track. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to talk <laughs> about that one. Okay. What is this song all about? Can't figure any lyrics out. So at this point, I think that we have to talk about Weird Al Yankovic. Yes. So the guys played for Saturday Night Live. 
90s, early 90s, so Victoria Jackson is still on Saturday Night Live, and she comes into their dressing room, and she's like, okay, um, my friend, Weird Al Yankovic, wants to do a parody of your song. Is that okay? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the uh, Chris Novoselic also plays the accordion, and so he was like, oh, I love I love Weird Al Yankovic. Of course he could do. <laughs> That's how you know you've hit it big. Yes. Okay. Okay, so next, are we, to, are we done? With, I don't know if we now? can ever fully be done with Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> um, I'm starting I, to smell a little bit like Teen Spirit myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the, here we get to song number two, which is about us. Okay. Yeah. So, In Bloom. In Bloom is song number two. And he wrote the song about people who don't understand the underground music scene. <laughs> and which, you know, you got to think, how did he know what was going to happen before the album was released? Well, he wrote this after Bleach came out. They started seeing a little bit, a little bit of success with Bleach. And suddenly they're going to their concerts and there's all these extra people like they've oversold whatever small venue you know they were playing to 300 people rooms at the time and then all of a sudden there's people standing in lines and so this song is about all of those guys those posers if you will who like their pretty songs yeah who like their pretty songs and like to sing it along but don't know what it means don't know what it means Okay, this song is awesome. If it's not for Teen Spirit, this is the best song in the album. I, I love it. You, this is a fantastic song, and the video. The I video love is hilarious. Yeah, it is. Kurt mentioned that everybody was taking them sadagum seriously. Yeah, they wanted to show their sense of humor. Yep, and so they have this sort of Ed Sullivan like. Right, and do you know who the guy who Nirvana? <laughs> You know That's who that guy Doug is? Doug Llewellyn from People's Court. Nice. Hello, I'm Doug Llewellyn, and welcome to the People's Court. He's the guy who bugs everybody when they come out. Hey, what do you think the judge thought? <laughs> I thought he was terrible. Yeah, they wanted to show everybody they had a sense of humor, so they dressed up like the Beach Boys in some Ed Sullivan show. This was actually the second video for this song. I don't know if you knew this. They had a different video because this was one of the ones that came from the, the sub pop days. And uh, it was them like walking around in the city. And Chris Novoselic had like, I, I don't know whether he had a bet with himself or somebody else, but basically it was like punishment to himself. He had played so poorly at one of their shows that he shaved his head. And so he's walking around in this video with no hair, and they're trying to intercut it with concert footage where he has hair. It didn't make any sense. So I'm, I'm really glad that they did this crazy video. And they had shot they shot three different versions of the video, some with, with them in dresses, and they had planned to do like this kind of sneak one out and put another video in just to throw people off. But what they ended up doing was just splicing all of those videos together. Video's great. It's funny, but it's, it's spot on. And the song is awesome. Oh, yeah. Awesome song. This song was their fourth single, released November 30th, 1992. Second track, fourth single. Okay, so 
I hesitate to do this. I hesitate to look at the lyrics and try to offer some sort of interpretation because Kurt Cobain said, you know, he's talking about all of the ideas about the lyrics and he hate they hated doing interviews, right? Right. And didn't want to talk about the meaning of their songs. They <laughs> right. just wanted the songs to speak for themselves. He finally gets fed up and he's like, Why in the heck do journalists insist on coming up with a second rate Freudian evaluation of my lyrics when ninety percent of the time they've transcribed them incorrectly? <laughs> <laughs> So I hesitate to do what I'm about to do, but just in my opinion, in addition to being about obviously about the guys who didn't understand their music, who were the adopters, but you know, that I know was frustrating for them. The song starts off with sell the kids for food, weather changes moods, spring is here again, reproductive glands. And I think it's just kind of, again, you can put whatever spin on you want to, but to me, it sounds like hey, let's have another kid. We won't really care as parents. We're just going to, you know, have another kid because our, you know, the spring's here and we're going to have some kids. And they end up being these jack-offs that come to the concert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave Grohl actually mentioned this too. I was going to uh, tell you this quote. He said, just seeing Kurt write the lyrics to a song five minutes before he first sings them, Yeah, you just kind of find it a little bit hard to believe that the song has a lot to say about something. You need syllables to fill the space, or you need rhymes. That's it. The way that Kurt wrote music was melody comes first. Music is first, then lyrics after, and not only in chronological order, but in order of importance. The melody was the most important thing to him, and then he would, yeah, he'd sit down and write the lyrics five minutes before, but we're talking about a an affected guy, a guy with some demons for sure, and I think this was his very simple way to exercise those demons to put pen to paper for these songs. In Bloom. Yep. Great. Five star. Great song. All right. All right. The next track, third track on the album is called Come As You Are. So their second single, Come As You Are, released March 2nd, 1992. So this song comes in with this watery sounding guitar, very fluid sound. Come as you the heavy hitting I mean, we've had smells like teen spirit and in bloom just blowing up in your face and then this one is a much softer smoother different sound it starts off slow and then builds it's a, it's a slow burn build they the the heavy comes in but it takes much longer than the first two songs you know we talked about this off the air but this song is featured in the movie captain marvel and i've told you that sometimes when you listen to it in your car uh-huh. or through the television or something, you don't really feel the power of the song. Yeah. When I was sitting in the movie theater, I felt the power of this song. Ooh, there's an idea. Maybe we should start something where we just play music videos at the movie theater for two hours and let the sound system like be like a rock concert. How awesome would that be? It was great, man. I blew my head up. So this song, they were hesitant to release this song. And it was this was the one that they were counting on to bring them to fame. It just turned out that Smells Like Teen Spirit actually brought them to fame. Right. Well, I was going to mention this to you. Yeah. This song, the beginning of this song, is yeah. very similar to a song called 80s by The Killing Joke. Yeah. Let's listen to that real quick. Okay. Oh. 
Supreme. Okay, yeah, that was <laughs> really close to that one. That's uh, close. Yeah, and so the 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 band uh, Killing Joke was pretty upset about this. They were clearly they thought yeah. Nirvana handled it poorly, and they were mad. And when you listen to it, it's pretty undeniable. So they probably were hesitant to fa- file a copyright infringement because they also stole. <laughs> <laughs> the intro music. There's a band called The Damned who had a song called Life Goes On, and uh, here's what that song sounds like. <laughs> wow, man, that is incredibly close. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Kurt Cobain could have got this motto from a, the Mork Hotel. In yeah. Aberdeen, Washington. So the the motto for this hotel that he stayed at sometimes when he got kicked out of his house was, right. come as you are. Yeah. You know, there's a, a couple of stories that go along with this album that I've, I, I, want, I want to tell. The first one is his mom's story. So before this album is released, he comes back to the house. And we, you know, if you want to look at his history, he was in and out of his mom's house, his dad's house, his grandparents' house, friends' houses. But, you know, that he's gone on, he's become a man now, he's in his 20s, but he comes back and stays with mom for a while before this album is released. And she says, so he comes down that morning in his tidy whities and he says, hey, I got the tape of our new album, uh, do you want to hear it? And she says, yeah, turn it up, because she likes her music loud. And so he starts playing it for her, and she starts crying not out of proudness, but out of fear. And she says, you better hold on because this is going to change everything. Wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Butch Vig. Now, so before before he recorded Nevermind, he had done Gish with the Smashing Pumpkins, which is not a small... Right. Not a small thing. I mean, he'd done hundreds of things, but I mean, he's he's friends with Billy Corgan, and so the, after the after they finally mix and master the album, uh, he's got a tape of it too, and he's having a barbecue right. at his house. Right. Billy Corgan's in the backyard eating a hot dog or whatever those guys eat. So anyway, he takes the tape and he puts it in this crappy little boombox and sits it on the table and hits play and goes over and starts cooking again. And he says all of a sudden he realizes that nobody's talking and he looks around and everybody has migrated over to the table and are just sitting around this crappy little boombox entranced. And they listen to the whole album. It ends, tape clicks, few seconds pass, and someone says, can you play it again? Wow. That's incredible, man. Yeah. Um, this reached number 32 on the Hot 100. Okay. Stayed on the chart for eight weeks. In 2011, Rolling Stone named it the 418th greatest song of all time. So the video for Come As You Are is much more surreal, different than their other videos. Same director as several of them. Um, but it, along with that kind of watery guitar, they have this effect where there's water coming down in front of it, and then Kurt is like swinging from a chandelier as water's falling <laughs> on him. The, the, the watery effect is kind of clear to everybody, but it's uh, it was another great video. And then Aberdeen, the guy's hometown, now the introduction sign where it says, Welcome to Aberdeen, underneath that it now says, Come as you are. That is cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. All right, moving on to the next song. This song's called Breed. Breed. 
gum this song takes <laughs> Holy crap, this song is good. It rips off with a bang, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, it's a good song. This song was actually written in 1989 and recorded in April of 1990 with Sub Pop. But the Sub Pop version is not what made it onto No, no. They updated it for this one. So this song was originally called Emodium, (laughs) after the anti-diarrheal medicine. Um, They were touring with... uh, Our buddies Tad. Yeah, Tad, that's right. And the lead singer Tad had a little... Tummy issue. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided to write a song called Imodium, but I'm glad they changed it. Breed is a much better better title to this song. This one, you know, we talk about the anthem for the apathetic. This is apathy at its clearest, right? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care if it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> Good song. Not great, but very enjoyable and solid, solid, solid track. Yeah, so, yeah, this is one of those ones that was a good new discovery for me because I hadn't had the album before. This is one that I was like, holy crap, this is really good. I was surprised they didn't have this as a as a single, honestly. I thought this was amazing, deserving of a single, um, but... It was really good, really solid. Yeah. All right, next song, very popular song, released July 13th, 1992, Lithium. I'm so happy... Cause today found my friends in my head. So lithium was this drug that they used to treat manic depression uh, before like Prozac and stuff. And so I think this kind of went along with some experiences that Kurt had had in his past. Obviously, mental illness is certainly a big factor there. Cause I found God. Good song, very, very popular song. This was the 10th most played song in the decade, according to mainstream rock radio, 123,000 times during the 90s. A really, really good song, though. Yeah. Okay, so this song is about a guy who is dealing with suicidal thoughts, finds religion, and that saves him from the suicidal thoughts. Right. Which goes along with that whole mental health thing. What plays a part in the song is some of Kurt's own experiences. This one was one that he actually wrote the song from beginning to end. It wasn't pieces of poetry or written five minutes before. He had this song when they were doing their sessions with Butch Vig over at Smart Studios before they they ended up in California. And this was the one that tore up his voice. This is also the one that caused the rift between him and Chad Channing, which led to them getting rid of him because he couldn't get Chad to get the, the drum right. This song's awesome, man. The, yeah. He makes that, he takes the word yeah and turns it into a fist-pumping, scream your head off, but yet perfectly great chorus, great melody. It just sounds really good. It's one of those hooky melodies for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, I Found God, you know, that concept, he actually had... Uh, stayed with a friend who was a Christian. Kurt Cobain accepted Christ at that time and was a Christian for a time, but had, you know later on was he Christianity was not for him. Yeah. He, he renounced it, but he said, you know, if other people need God to be saved, then that then they need it. That yeah, here's good. his quote on that. Yeah. I thought that, was, thought that was interesting too. Lithium is a song about a guy who turns to religion after his girlfriend dies. It soothes him much like a dose of actual lithium. 
I've always felt that some people should have religion in their lives. That's fine. If it's going to save them, it's okay. And the person in lithium needed it. So after lithium, we have Holly. Holly wants a cracker. Polly was another one of those songs that I had heard before, but when I listened to it again, I was like, this is dark. Yeah. This is creepy. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, this is an interesting perspective. And I'm kind of thinking of this as an imaginary story. And then I was today years old when I learned this is based on a real event. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the guy kidnapped a girl after a punk rock concert whose name was Polly. She was 14. Yeah, 14 years old. And he, he kept her captive, all, all things that come up in the song. But the thing that really spoke to Kurt about the song was that she decided to come on to him and to you know identify with him as a person in order to set herself up for escape. And that was how she got away from him and how he ultimately got caught. Chris said that Kurt re- that, that really stuck out to him, which I may be overanalyzing a bit here, but isn't that kind of what they did with this album? Like they had their punk grunge sound that was underground sound, but they made an album that the masses could identify with so that they would be adopted and be able to... Do what they want. Nice, nice. I see what you're doing there. Yeah, well. Interesting. Seems to it seems to be. This song dates all the way back to 1988. Yeah. So there's a mistake in this song that they left in. Paulie said. Kurt comes in too early. When they listen to it again, they're like, I don't know, I kind of like that. You've, you've, you've heard Jason talk about accidental drip, and accidental drip is something that I've talked to him about, but I don't know that we've ever talked about it in an episode. But the accidental drip is when you are painting a picture and the picture isn't quite right and then a piece of paint or a drop of paint falls off the brush and hits the canvas and suddenly the picture comes to life just from that accidental drip and so that this, this is one of those accidental drip moments okay so that wraps up side one of Nevermind, and we've talked I mean, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our episode on Hysteria that I thought the side one of Hysteria was the best side of any album that we had covered up to that point. This this competes with that. I mean, you've got oh, yeah. Teen Spirit, you've got In Bloom, yep. you've got Come As You Are, Breed, Lithium, and Polly. So hit stop on your tape player, kick it out, flip it over. <laughs> now we're going to go into side two. Okay, this song, the first song on side two is a song called Territorial Pissing. Yes, and here's the point in the podcast where Jason and I take different positions. This song is garbage. <laughs> oh no, it is so good. This song good. is crap. If you've got if you've got a song that defines what the, you know, the attitude and the aggression and the nastiness that Nirvana brought to the rock music scene, that is this song. Oh, it's so good. Love it. I uh, love it. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is where I become the old man. I, it, as soon as they start singing that out of tune, I'm like, no, no, no. 
this is definitely not pop production right here. No. This is full-on punk. Yep. Which is not to my liking. Right. I can't say whether it's full-on punk or not because I've never been a punk guy. <laughs> well, there But you. this is definitely, if, if I was going to say this is the punkiest song on there, yeah, I, I would say this is it. This is not the worst song in the album. This song sucks. Uh-huh. It is not the worst song in the album. Okay. All right. Yeah. Keep going. Got to find a way, a better way. For as good as I enjoy his voice and that, yeah. how he strains and kind of leans on it uh-huh. in Teen Spirit and stuff like that, yeah, he... he it, it breaks on him on this one, and it's no good to me. Yeah, because he's not doing that. He's not doing your hooky melody in this one. There's That's no true. hooky melody. Uh, just because you're paranoid, don't mean they're not after you. I had to think about that line for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so this was not obviously not a single for him. I think this is probably one that their uh, fans love, but probably n- not for the masses. Would you agree? Yes. <laughs> this is the type where the guy next to you punches you in the face just because he's enjoying the concert. <laughs> Yeah, I do not care for that, please. (laughs) Can we move on to the next song? Yeah, we can move on. All right. Next song is called Drain You. This is another one. This one comes from his relationship with Toby Vale. Yep. And the song starts off with one baby says to another, I'm lucky to have met you. And that was something that she used to say to him. But then shortly thereafter, it's my duty now to drain you because uh, that's kind of how he felt the breakup went. But it's a good one. I like it. It's a good song. It's a good song. Kurt Cobain claimed that this song was the equal or better than Teen Spirit. It does have that kind of pop hook to it. it to me, it's it's got a very Alice in Chains feel to it, the way that the harmonies are going and the chorus. Sounds a lot like uh, Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley to me, but um, it's just my thought. I don't know that I would say it's as good as... No way. Spirit. No way. I'm going against you, Kurt, on this one. Yeah. Dave Grohl actually compared this one to Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. <laughs> Dave, okay. He's kind of a goofball. Right. But... I got to disagree with both of them. This is a good song. Yeah. But there is no way it's as good as Teen Spirit. They're a little more proud of it than we are, I think. Okay, so next song on the album is Lounge Act. Mm -hmm. Another good song. Okay, so when I was a kid, I used to uh, lay in bed, and when I couldn't go to sleep, I would play with my voice. And it sounded like, uh, <laughs> and that's what the beginning of this song is. Yeah. And then you go into this really big. This is probably the poppiest to me. This is yeah. the poppiest sounding song on the album. Yeah, for sure. It's got the same. It's just solid guitars. It's a head bobber. Um, it's a good song. I like it. Yeah. Not the best song on the album. Just, no. It's a song that you cruise on through. This is actually the 10th most favorite song by Nirvana fans. Really? According to Rolling Stone. Okay. Well, so, it's a head bobber. It's, it's, yeah, I was going to say, it's hooky. I got it, but didn't like it. Didn't blow my skirt up. Yeah. Next one, a song called Stay Away. Okay. I'm not a fan. 
Didn't like it. Really? Didn't okay. like this one. All right. So just in case you might have forgotten whether Dave Grohl can hit the drums hard or not, this <laughs> song answers that question. That's true. Fast and hard. Yeah. This is speedy, less hooky, but... In all these songs, you can sing along to. This is a song where this is another one of the songs I'm like, okay, this is good. This is not one that I remembered, but... Definitely a good song to listen to. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. It's okay. It's all right. Okay. All right. Next song is called On a Plane. Stop yourself without any words. I got so high, scratched till I bled. Love myself better than you. Know it's wrong. What should I do? Okay. So this one to me. This is this is one I'm dissatisfied with because to me this one almost sounds like the bands that came out after Nirvana that were trying to sound like Nirvana. <laughs> That's what this one sounds like to me. It, it is interesting. This one has a little bit of the ooh, you know, that's yeah. stuff that you don't really expect Nirvana to do. Yeah, this one is yeah not my. This is not in my top Nirvana songs at all. I like it. I, I mean, it's good. It's catchy. It's it's a pop song. It's a pop song. Yeah. Now, they had a version of it on Unplugged, which was completely different. I'm on a plane. I can't complain. I'm on a plane. I mean, obviously, Unplugged has a lot of different, you don't have sure. distortion in your guitar. But, right. but they've got a cello playing on that one, and I enjoyed that one more natural-sounding song. Um but this is one that Kurt Cobain later on would say he wasn't happy with how it turned out on the album. I do think it would be interesting once we get done with these songs to talk about his response to the album. Yeah. He said the way we play it live, and it's funny because, they, I mean, he wrote the lyrics for the song like five minutes before the song right. was recorded. And right. so they didn't play it live until after they had already done the recording. But he said he liked the way they played it live better, had a rawer sound to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Butch Vig. Puts out good pop songs. I, I, I can. And he made them superstars. Dude, I will not, I will not say anything bad about Butch Vig, but this just this particular song is a little overproduced for the songs on this album. It's still a Nirvana song. It still kicks butt, but it's just not my favorite. Okay. So let's talk about the best song on side two. Okay. And that song is called Something in the Way. So this one is beautiful love it it's it's gorgeous yeah and there's a Beatles song that's got the lyric something in the way as well but this is this was a unique song all around when I listen to this song Mm -hmm. to me I listen to this song and you put Madonna's song secret next to it (laughs) I think it sounds very similar. Okay, we can we can put that to the test. Okay. Things haven't been the same since you came into my life. Um, this song, when they were they were working on it in the studio, and uh, Kurt was not satisfied with how the recording was going. Yeah. And so he went to the control room and he he told Butch, he's like, "This is the way it needs to be sounding." He's like, almost like a whisper. Yeah. He and he lays going, down. Like he's he's got, on the couch, yeah. Yeah, he lays down on the couch. He's got a five-string guitar. Like, Butch says, okay, dude, hold on just a second. Just stay right there. Don't move. Yeah. And he goes and gets a 
a microphone. Yeah. And, and he tells everybody, okay, everybody be quiet. And he said, go for it. Yeah. In the control room, on the couch. Right. And that, that's how they captured it. They used that as the core of the song afterwards. And so then Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic have to record something that wasn't on a click track. Like this is the, they're just going by how Kurt felt the rhythm was going. So this is, this is a very soulful, spiritual kind of song. And the, the lyrics are kind of a, you know, a guy under a bridge with no place else to go talking to the animals. It's, you know, there was a, like people kind of talked about, oh, did he really live under a bridge? No, but this again kind of captures that feeling of isolation and of not knowing where you belong that guys my age were feeling like you know we were in the 90s we're 16 17 years old and we just don't know what the point of everything is right and so this this is one of those songs that kind of captured that that feeling they brought in a guy to play cello on this song. Yeah. Not many Nirvana songs you hear a cello on. Not on this album. That's true. Yeah. But it's so soulful and sweet. I love it. He, Whenever they were recording Dave and uh, Chris's parts, Kurt kept sitting behind Dave going, no, quieter. Quieter. <laughs> <laughs> I love this song. This, to me, is, is a heavy hitter up there with Come As You Are and Lithium. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. It's beautiful. It is the it is the most beautiful on the album for sure. All right. Okay. Are we done and with then that one? We have the secret track. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Okay, that's enough of that. Um, yeah. Okay, that's not a song. <laughs> no. That's not a song. No, so they, I mean, this is like something where they were just jamming, and this is a jam session, and this is just them, I don't know. Okay, this is what I heard about this song. Okay. They were trying, they were working on lithium. Yes. And they were having some difficulty making it work. Yeah. And then this was just an improv jam session. Yeah. And it's frustration, and I'm mad, and they just kind of went with it. Yeah. Butch Vig left the tape recording, Yeah. and he picked it up. Yeah. Now then, they should have thrown it in the trash. Right. Well, the guy who the uh, <laughs> the guy who did the master, who mastered yes. this thing, he came in, like everybody was supposed to meet at a certain time, and he came in to do the master, and nobody was there. Right. So, so he was like... Uh, all right, well, I guess I'll go ahead and get started working. And so he made this whole master, which if you don't know what that is, that's creating the one piece that all of the other pieces come from, right? right? Before digital really became big, you had to have a master to go back to so that you could get the cleanest sound. So he's putting all of these things in the master, and he hears Endless Nameless, and he's like, okay, that obviously is not supposed to go on the album. Right. <laughs> That is so horrible, I can tell without even asking anybody, that doesn't belong here. Yeah, his name was Howie Weinberg. And so he leaves that off, and they printed 20,000 albums, CDs, and tapes. Without it. Yeah, without it. And then Kurt Cobain finally listens to one of them, and he's like, wait a minute, where's Endless Nameless? And so they were like, we told you, that had to be on there. And he's like, okay. Yeah. I thought that was a joke. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's I don't know what that is. So they got really mad, and they actually made them reprint the album with that on yeah, there. Right. It was it was it's a secret track. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It comes all the way after something in the way. Something in the way. Now, Weird Al actually has a version of this. A endless, nameless. Yes. Oh no. It's called Bite Me. Okay. <laughs> it's a secret track. I can't remember what record it's on. It's got to be on the one that sm- smells it's like Nirvana. It's got to be on, and it's called Bite Me. Uh, okay, we'll find that. <laughs> so when they first, when, when all these songs were done and they uh, had recorded them all, Butch Vig tried to do the mix for them and they were, neither he nor the band was happy with it. So they brought in this guy called Andy Wallace, uh, who had co-produced uh, Seasons in the Abyss by Slayer, which they loved. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the band, even though they said they loved the mixes, they would later on say, yeah, we didn't really like the way that that sounded. We, you know, Kurt Cobain said it sounded closer to Motley Crue than a punk rock record. Yeah, he was a little bit embarrassed at the production of this one. Yeah. I mean, punk as a definition, as a genre, yeah. is not produced. It's just like, right. you know. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. If you want a song that it's going to appeal to the masses, if you want to achieve what you, you said your goal is, you want your art to mean something, so you want it to appeal as, to as many people as possible so that you can get their attention, you, you don't produce a punk album. Right. Right. Once again, we've talked about this, how some movie stars don't watch their movies. Right. And for me, I, I mean, I understand creating art as you want it to be. Yeah. But this was so impactful to me that they should love this album. Right. And, you know, it's it, it's kind of, again, being in that situation where people are obsessing about it and constantly talking to you about it and constantly asking you questions that I can see how it would wear on you after a while. Sure. But he, Kurt Cobain, would say, actually, I really, I still really enjoyed playing Smells Like Teen Spirit, it just became such a thing that it almost became embarrassing to play because of how obsessive people were about it. Right. I did hear Chris talk about talk about Nevermind. Yeah. Like a 20-year later retrospective. Yes. He says, the best thing I've ever been associated with. Yeah. So it's it that makes me feel good. I love... I thoroughly enjoyed it. Sure. And the fact that he thoroughly enjoys it does make me feel better. Right. I'm sure that everybody listening to this knows what the history is. They produce uh, other albums. And then in, in 1994, Kurt Cobain commits suicide um, at his home in Washington. And there's lots of stories there that we're not going to go into at this time. But, you know, kind of in doing this and, and looking at this, I almost, like if, if I'm watching this as a movie, I don't see any other ending except that he can't he can't grow old. He has to be eternally youthful he has to be 27 forever forever because you can't be the voice of the generation you can't you know change the music the way that he did and continue on and still have the impact i I don't know right so he was i read this about uh michael stipe of rem uh they were planning an album together kurt cobain and and Michael Stipe were planning to do an album together that would have been completely different than anything they had done before. Clean, bringing in orchestra-style music. Hmm. And I can't even... I mean, can you just imagine Kurt Cobain with an orchestra or with strings behind him with very clean... But we 
never got that, sadly. Sadly. Yeah. Sadly. I, I remember when that happened. That was, I mean, people held candlelight vigils and mm-hmm. were crying and shocked. And if you grew up in the 90s, this guy was your John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah, for some folks, for sure. So do we want to talk a little bit about uh, the impact of the album? Yeah. Okay. It, for me, it's interesting because it's it had this huge huge impact it wasn't the best-selling album of 1992 okay in fact it, according to who you look at it was beat out by at least three albums by garth brooks uh-huh. an album by crisscross and an album by billy ray cyrus oh my well again you have you have folks who buy in at certain points you have the the early adopters you've got the the masses and then you've got the 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 tagalongs or the late adopters and yeah, I can see. This was not a thing. Like, I mean, a lot of our listening audience, like if they came in with Van Halen, I bet a lot of those guys are like, I don't want to listen to something about Nirvana. Right. Because it was it was a revolution against that style of music. Yeah, for sure. I love them both, so I'm good with it. The staying power, though, is really the yeah. is, is the factor here. Because, I mean, Criss Cross, gone. Billy Ray <laughs> Cyrus, gone. Yeah. I mean, Garth Brooks, he kind of he's, retired. He's, he's kind those of on, those Garth Brooks albums are kind of iconic, but yeah. But yeah, let me. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to this album from beginning to end, if you kind of wrote off, is that the proper grammar? If you wrote off Nirvana back in the '90s, take a listen again, sincerely. It, uh, listen it, with an open mind, and I think you'll be impressed. We talked about it. Both of us sort of rediscovered this album, and. It's impressive. Yeah. It's impressive. And so next week we're going to move on to another impressive album that came out at the same time, which I have a a whole different experience with, Um, and I'm excited to talk about that one. You you talked about waiting 35 years. I've been waiting nearly 30 years to talk about this one for sure. Great. I can't wait. Yeah. So next week we'll talk about Pearl Jam's 10. Uh, Stay tuned for that one, and, and you'll hear our final judgment as to which of the grunge albums are the best stay tuned for that and if uh, please subscribe now you know all you have to do if you're on your phone you scroll down on your phone there's a little subscribe button hit that button right now and then you won't miss that next episode when it comes out thank you for listening i hope that uh some of our van halen and Def Leppard guys have stuck around for this one. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. We sure appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. D, see you next week. See you next week. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.